Section twenty six of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section twenty six. Another day I spoke of one of our friends of whom he as well as i had a very high opinion he expatiated in his praise but added sir he is a cursed wig a bottomless wig as they all are now footnote burke no doubt was this bottomless wig when johnson said so they all are now he was perhaps thinking of the coalition ministry in which Lord North and his friends had places. End of footnote. I mentioned my expectations from the interest of an eminent person then in power, adding, but I have no claim but the claim of friendship. However, some people will go a great way from that motive. Footnote. Note out Burke, who was paymaster of the forces, he is Boswell's eminent friend. In these two consecutive paragraphs, though two people seem to be spoken of, yet only one is in reality. End of footnote. Johnson. Sir, they will go all the way from that motive. A gentleman talked of retiring. Never think of that, said Johnson. The gentleman urged, I should then do no ill, Johnson, nor no good either. So it would be a civil suicide. Footnote. I believe that Burke himself was present part of the time, and that he was the gentleman who talked of retiring. On May the 19th and 21st, he had in Parliament defended his action in restoring to office two clerks, Powell and Bembridge, who had been dismissed by his predecessor, and he had justified his reforms in the paymaster's office. He awaited, he said, the judgment of the House. If they so far differed in sentiment, he had only to say, Nunc dimittis servum tuum. End of footnote. On Monday, May the 26th, I found him at tea, and the celebrated Miss Burney, the author of Evelina and Cecilia, with him. Footnote. A copy of Evelina had been placed in the Bodleian. Johnson says, wrote Miss Burney, that when he goes to Oxford, he will write my name in the books, and my age, when I read them. And then, he says, the world may know that we so mix our studies and so joined our fame, for we shall go down hand in hand to posterity. The oldest copy of Evelina now in the Bodleian is of an edition published after Johnson's death. Miss Burney, in 1793, married General D'Arblay, a French refugee. End of footnote. I asked if there would be any speakers in Parliament if there were no places to be obtained. Johnson. Yes, sir. Why do you speak here? 
either to instruct and entertain, which is a benevolent motive, or for distinction, which is a selfish motive. I mentioned Cecilia. Johnson, with an air of animated satisfaction, Sir, if you talk of Cecilia, talk on. Footnote. Macaulay maintained that Johnson had a hand in the composition of Cecilia. He quotes a passage from it and says, We say with confidence either Samuel Johnson or the devil. That he is mistaken is shown by Madame D'Arblay's diary. Ah, cried Dr. Johnson, some people want to make out some credit to me from the little rogue's book. I was told by a gentleman this morning that it was a very fine book, if it was all her own. It is all her own, said I. For me, I'm sure I never saw one word of it before it was printed. On page 196 she records the following. Sir Joshua. Gibbon says he read the whole five volumes in a day. It's impossible, cried Mr. Burke. It cost me three days. And you know, I never parted with it from the day I first opened it. End of footnote. We talked of Mr. Barry's exhibition of his pictures. Johnson. Whatever the hand may have done, the mind has done its part. There is a grasp of mind there which you find nowhere else. Footnote. In Mr. Barry's printed analysis or description of these pictures, he speaks of Johnson's character in the highest terms. Oswald. Barry, in one of his pictures, placed Johnson between the two beautiful duchesses of Rutland and Devonshire, pointing to their graces, Mrs. Montague as an example. He expresses his reverence for his consistent, manly, and well-spent life. Johnson, in his turn, praises the comprehension of Barry's design. He was more likely to understand it as the pictures formed a series meant to illustrate one great maxim of moral truth, namely, that the obtaining of happiness depends upon cultivating the human faculties. We begin with man in a savage state, full of inconvenience, imperfection, and misery, and we follow him through several gradations of culture and happiness, which, after our probationary state here, are finally attended with beatitude or misery. Horace Walpole describes Barry's book as one which does not what sense, though full of passion and self and vulgarisms and vanity. End of footnote. I asked whether a man naturally virtuous or one who has overcome wicked inclinations is the best. Johnson, so to you, the man who has overcome wicked inclinations is not the best. He has more merit to himself. I would rather trust my money to a man who has no hands and so a physical impossibility to steal than to a man of the most honest principles. There is a witty satirical story of Foot. He had a small bust of Garrick placed upon his bureau. You may be surprised, said he, that I allow him to be so near my gold. 
but you will observe he has no hands. On Friday, May the 29th, being to set out for Scotland next morning, I passed a part of the day with him in more than usual earnestness, as his health was in a more precarious state than at any time when I had parted from him. Footnote. Boswell had tried to bring about a third meeting between Johnson and Wilkes. On May the 21st he wrote, Mr. Boswell's compliments to Mr. Wilkes. He finds that it would not be unpleasant to Dr. Johnson to dine at Mr. Wilkes's. The thing would be so curiously benignant, it were a pity it should not take place. Nobody but Mr. Boswell should be asked to meet the doctor. An invitation was sent, but the following answer was returned. May the 21st, 1783. Mr. Johnson returns thanks to Mr. and Miss Wilkes for their kind invitation, but he is engaged for Tuesday to Joshua Reynolds and for Wednesday to Mr. Paradise. Owing to Boswell's return to Scotland, another day could not be fixed. End of footnote. He, however, was quick and lively and critical as usual. I mentioned one who was a very learned man. Johnson. Yes, sir, he has a great deal of learning, but it never lies straight. There is never one idea by the side of another. It's all entangled. And then he drives it so awkwardly upon conversation. I stated to him an anxious thought by which a sincere Christian might be disturbed, even when conscious of having lived a good life so far as is consistent with human infirmity, he might feel that he should afterwards fall away and be guilty of such crimes as would render his former religion vain. Could there be upon this awful subject such a thing as balancing of accounts? Suppose a man who has led a good life for seven years commits an act of wickedness and instantly dies, will his former good life have any effect in his favour? Johnson. So if a man has led a good life for seven years and then is hurried by passion to do what is wrong and is suddenly carried off, depend upon it, he will have the reward of his seven years' good life. God will not take a catch of him. Upon this principle, Richard Baxter believes that a suicide may be saved. If, says he, it should be objected that what I maintain may encourage suicide, I answer, I am not to tell a lie to prevent it. Boswell, but does not the text say, as the tree falls, so must it lie? Johnson, yes, sir, as the tree falls. But, after a little pause, that is meant as to the general state of the tree, not what is the effect of a sudden blast. In short, he interpreted the expression as referring to condition, not to position. A common notion, therefore, seems to be erroneous, and Shenstone's witty remark on divines, trying to give a tree a jerk, upon a deathbed to make it lie favourably is not well founded 
Footnote. When a tree is falling, I have seen the laborers, by a trivial jerk with a rope, throw it upon the spot where they would wish it should lie. Divines, understanding this text too literally, pretend, by a little interposition in the article of death, to regulate a person's everlasting happiness. I fancy the illusion will hardly countenance their presumption. End of footnote. I asked him what works of Richard Baxter's I should read. He said, Read any of them, they are all good. Footnote. Hazlitt says that when old Baxter first went to Kidderminster to preach, he was almost pelted by the women for maintaining from the pulpit the then fashionable and orthodox doctrine that hell was paved with infant skulls. End of footnote. He said, get as much force of mind as you can, live within your income, always have something saved at the end of the year, let your imports be more than your exports, and you'll never go far wrong. I assured him that in the extensive and various range of his acquaintance, there never had been anyone who had a more sincere respect and affection for him than I had. He said, I believe it, sir. Were I in distress, there is no man to whom I should sooner come than to you. I should like to come and have a cottage in your park, toddle about, live mostly on milk, and be taken care of by Mrs. Boswell. She and I are good friends now, are we not? Talking of devotion, he said, Though it be true that God dwelleth not in temples made with hands, yet in this state of being our minds are more piously affected in places appropriated to divine worship than in others. Some people have a particular room in their house where they say their prayers, of which I do not disapprove, as it may animate their devotion. He embraced me and gave me his blessing, as usual when I was leaving him for any length of time. I walked from his door today with a fearful apprehension of what might happen before I returned. To the Right Honourable William Wyndham, Sir, the bringer of this letter is the father of Miss Phillips. Footnote now the celebrated Mrs. Crouch, Boswell. End of footnote a singer who comes to try her voice on the stage at Dublin. Mr. Phillips is one of my old friends, and as I am of opinion that neither he nor his daughter will do anything that can disgrace their benefactors, I take the liberty of entreating you to countenance and protect them, so far as may be suitable to your station and character, and shall consider myself as obliged by any favourable notice which they shall have the honour of receiving from you. I am, sir, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, London, May 31st, 1783. The following is another instance of his active benevolence. To Sir Joshua Reynolds, dear sir, I have sent you some of my godsons, footnote, son of Mr. Samuel Patterson, Boswell, end of footnote, performances, of which I do not pretend to form any opinion, 
When I took the liberty of mentioning him to you, I did not know what I have since been told, that Mr. Moser, [Footnote: The late Keeper of the Royal Academy. He died on January the 23rd of this year. Reynolds wrote of him, "He may truly be said in every sense to have been the father of the present race of artists."] had admitted him among the students of the Academy. What more can be done for him, I earnestly entreat you to consider, for I am very desirous that he should derive some advantage from my connection with him. If you are inclined to see him, I will bring him to wait upon you at any time that you shall be pleased to appoint. I am, Sir, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, June 2nd, 1783. My anxious apprehensions at parting with him this year proved to be but too well founded, for not long afterwards he had a dreadful stroke of the palsy, of which there are very full and accurate accounts in letters written by himself, to show with what composure of mind and resignation to the divine will his steady piety enabled him to behave. To Mr. Edmund Allen, footnote, Mr. Allen was his landlord and next neighbour in Bolt Court, end of footnote. Dear sir, it has pleased God this morning to deprive me of the powers of speech, and as I do not know but that it may be his further good pleasure to deprive me soon of my senses, I request you will, on the receipt of this note, come to me and act for me as the exigencies of my case may require. I am sincerely yours, Samuel Johnson, June 17, 1783. To the Reverend Dr. John Taylor, dear sir, it has pleased God by a paralytic stroke in the night to deprive me of speech. I am very desirous of Dr. Heberden's assistance, as I think my case is not past remedy. Footnote. Cooper mentions him in Retirement. Virtuous and faithful Heberden, whose skill attempts no task it cannot well fulfil, gives melancholy up to nature's care, and sends the patient into purer air. Cooper's Poems. He is mentioned also by Priestley as one of his chief benefactors. Lord Eldon, when almost a briefless barrister, consulted him. I put my hand into my pocket, meaning to give him his fee, but he stopped me, saying, Are you the young gentleman who gained the prize for the essay at Oxford? I said I was. I will take no fee from you. I often consulted him, but he would never take a fee. End of footnote. Let me see you as soon as it is possible. Bring Dr. Heberden with you if you can, but come yourself at all events. I am glad you are so well when I am so dreadfully attacked. I think that by a speedy application of stimulants much may be done. I question if a vomit, vigorous and rough, would not rouse the organs of speech to action. As it is too early to send, I will try to recollect what I can that can be suspected of having brought on this dreadful distress. I have been accustomed to bleed frequently for an asthmatic complaint, but have forborne for some time by Dr. Pepys' persuasion, who perceived my legs beginning to swell. I sometimes alleviate a painful or more properly an oppressive constriction of my chest by opiates, 
and I have lately taken opium frequently, but the last or two last times in smaller quantities, my largest dose is three grains, and last night I took but two. Footnote. How much he had physicked himself is shown by a letter of May the 8th. I took on Thursday, he writes, two brisk cassatics and a dose of calomel. Little things do me no good. At night I was much better. Next day, cassatic again, and the third day, opium for my cough. I lived without flesh all the three days. He had been bled at least four times that year, and had lost about fifty ounces of blood. On August the 3rd, 1779, he wrote, Of the last fifty days I have taken mercurial physic, I believe, forty. End of footnote. You will suggest these things, and they are all that I can call to mind, to Dr. Heberden. I am, etc., Samuel Johnson, June the 17th, 1783. Footnote. An exact reprint of this letter is given by Professor Mayer in Notes and Queries. The omissions and the repetitions betray, he says, the writer's agitation. The postscript Boswell had omitted. It is as follows. Dr. Brocklesby will be with me to meet Dr. Heberden, and I shall have previously make sick master of the case as well as I can. End of footnote. Two days after, he wrote thus to Mrs. Thrale. Footnote. The beginning of the letter is very touching. I am sitting down in no cheerful solitude to write a narrative which would once have affected you with tenderness and sorrow but which you will perhaps pass over now with the careless glance of frigid indifference. For this diminution of regard, however, I know not whether I ought to blame you, who may have reasons which I cannot know, and I do not blame myself, who have for a great part of human life done you what good I could, and have never done you evil. I have loved you, he continued, with virtuous affection. I have honoured you with sincere esteem. Let not all our endearments be forgotten, but let me have, in this great distress, your pity and your prayers. You see, I yet turn to you with my complaints as a settled and unalienable friend. Do not, do not drive me from you, for I have not deserved either neglect or hatred. End footnote. On Monday the 16th I sat for my picture and walked a considerable way with little inconvenience. Footnote. On August the 20th he wrote, I sat to Mrs. Reynolds yesterday for my picture, perhaps the tenth time, and I sat near three hours with the patience of mortal born to bear. At last she declared it quite finished, and seems to think it fine. I told her it was Johnson's grimly ghost. It is to be engraved, and I think inglided, etc., will be a good inscription. Johnson is quoting from Mallet's ballad of Margaret's Ghost. 
'Twas at the silent solemn hour, When night and morning meet, In glided Margaret's grimly ghost, And stood at William's feet. Percy Ballads. According to Northcote, Reynolds said of his sister's oil paintings, They made other people laugh, and him cry. She generally, Northcote adds, did them by stealth. End of footnote. In the afternoon and evening I felt myself light and easy, and began to plan schemes of life. Thus I went to bed, and in a short time waked and sat up, as has been long my custom, when I felt a confusion and indistinctness in my head, which lasted, I suppose, about half a minute. I was alarmed, and prayed God that, however he might afflict my body, he would spare my understanding. This prayer, that I might try the integrity of my faculties, I made in Latin verse. The lines were not very good, but I knew them not to be very good. I made them easily, and concluded myself to be unimpaired in my faculties. Soon after I perceived that I had suffered a paralytic stroke, and that my speech was taken from me. I had no pain and so little dejection in this dreadful state that I wondered at my own apathy, and considered that perhaps death itself, when it should come, would excite less horror than seems now to attend it. In order to rouse the vocal organs, I took two drams. Wine has been celebrated for the production of eloquence. I put myself into violent motion, and I think repeated it, but all was vain. I then went to bed, and, strange as it may seem, I think slept. When I saw light, it was time to contrive what I should do. Though God stopped my speech, he left me my hand. I enjoyed a mercy which was not granted to my dear friend Lawrence, who now perhaps overlooks me as I am writing, and rejoices that I have what he wanted. Footnote. According to the Gentleman's Magazine, Dr. Lawrence died at Canterbury on June the 13th of this year. His second son died on the 15th. But if we may trust Monk's roll of the College of Physicians, on the father's tombstone, June the 6th, is given as the day of his death. Mr. Croker gives June the 17th as the date, and June the 19th as the day of the son's death, and is puzzled accordingly. End of footnote. My first note was necessary to my servant, who came in talking, and could not immediately comprehend why he should read what I put into his hands. I then wrote a card to Mr. Allen, that I might have a discreet friend at hand to act as occasion should require. In penning this note I had some difficulty. My hand, I knew not how nor why, made wrong letters. I then wrote to Dr. Taylor to come to me and bring Dr. Hebbenant, and I sent to Dr. Brocklesby, who was my neighbour. My physicians are very friendly and give me great hopes but you may imagine my situation. I have so far recovered my vocal powers as to repeat the Lord's Prayer 
with no very imperfect articulation. My memory, I hope, yet remains as it was, but such an attack produces solicitude for the safety of every faculty. Mr. Thomas Davies, dear sir, I have had indeed a very heavy blow, but God, who yet spares my life, I humbly hope, will spare my understanding and restore my speech. As I am not at all helpless, I want no particular assistance, but am strongly affected by Mrs. Davies' tenderness, and when I think she can do me good, I shall be very glad to call upon her. I had ordered friends to be shut out, but one or two have found the way in, and if you come, you shall be admitted. For I know not whom I can see that will bring more amusement on his tongue, or more kindness in his heart. I am, etc., Samuel Johnson, June the 18th, 1783. It gives me great pleasure to preserve such a memorial of Johnson's regard for Mr. Davies, to whom I was indebted for my introduction to him. Footnote. Poor Derrick, however, though he did not himself introduce me to Dr. Johnson as he promised, had the merit of introducing me to Davies, the immediate introductor, Boswell. End of footnote. He indeed loved Davies cordially, of which I shall give the following little evidence. One day, when he had treated him with too much asperity, Tom, who was not without pride and spirit, went off in a passion. But he had hardly reached home when Frank, who had been sent after him, delivered this note. Come, come, dear Davies, I am always sorry when we quarrel. Send me word that we are friends. End of section 26